I think we've just got to help people relate to the context of what we're trying to do or decentralization or blockchain and DLT with as many relatable examples as possible. Take the jargon out, take, take the how it works out, take the blockchain out if you can and say, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to digitize certain parts of a process that we didn't have before. Or we're going to give you an experience that you weren't able to do. Or we're going to allow you to trade peer to peer, energy, tokens, um, watches, pictures of bored apes, instantly on your mobile phone. And you can pay for that with lower costs, lower fees, greater speed to anybody in the world. And we're going to democratize that marketplace or we're going to allow people access to that content in a different way. It's a very long ramble of how do we explain that. But I think education has to be in context. It can't just be that you know, until we just ram home how Bitcoin works to everybody, suddenly they'll finally wake up and get it. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. Anthony Days, today's guest on Off the Ledger. He is uh, one of the blockchain leaders at uh, IBM, and uh, he's also the host of popular blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Hey, Jason. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. So uh, you actually just corrected me on a, on a position that you're at. I'd love to hear a little bit more for clarity as to what does a leader at uh, in blockchain and at, at uh, Deloitte, IBM, you know, you've been all over the place. So what is it that you're doing today? Gotcha. Thanks for asking, Jason. So when I get asked the, how do I get to work in blockchain? It's always helpful to have a frame of reference of what am I doing? And I get the really exciting job of everything from ideation around how can we use blockchain technology and other complementary technologies as well, right? It's not just about blockchain, but specifically, how can we take a decentralized approach to changing different industries, customer, client, or government ways of doing things. So my job starts right through from blockchain strategy and ideation. What's the business case? What could the government's mod governance model look like be for a new platform? Right through then into supporting some of our engineers and developers into actually building, deploying, going to production with blockchain. So I get to see the full life cycle of the technology part in the middle, but also the important business and governments, governance sides around the, the edge of it. Interesting. And, and so for today, with the change from sort of the Deloitte consultancy space to now being more actively involved with IBM, what's the biggest shift and change for you? That's a great question. I, I left Deloitte from what was a wonderful team. We had about 50 people in the uh, EMEA lab, it was basically our center of competence for blockchain delivery. Um, it was a brilliant, brilliant team. But at that time, you know, Deloitte were punching well above our weight in terms of the work that we were doing, the types of clients and projects we were taking on and delivering. We had a, a multi, multidisciplinary team. We were working with Corda, Ethereum, Hyperledger Fabric, and some other kind of more expansive stuff too. And what I really wanted is the opportunity to work at scale in a tech company, in a proper tech company. You know, Deloitte is a consulting company that has technology capability. IBM is a tech company, right? There, there are architects, production engineers, um, you know, network management, uh, managed service type capabilities that a, a team and a company like Deloitte has no reason to or hasn't at this point in time got in its, in its tool set. And so that was the reason is I wanna work for the number one in blockchain. IBM at the time when I left a couple of years ago were number one in the world, still are in my view. And I've not been disappointed with the, the sort of the capability and the breadth of what IBM does in blockchain. 
Interesting. That, that's uh, that's exciting to hear, actually, because IBM isn't necessarily one of the big names that you hear all the time, right? I mean, I, I suppose in a in sort of architecture standpoint, you hear it a little bit, but it's really not something that you hear about all the time in the, in the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. Depending on where you go, if you're if you're in blockchain and you're specifically enterprise blockchain, and I realize you know our community is is spread across a whole bunch of different places. If you look at um, you know token based businesses, crypt, pure crypto businesses, DeFi, enterprise blockchain, and then DLT, everybody's got a different set of news that they read, right? If you go to Ledger Insights, you'll hear quite a lot about IBM. If you go to Coin Telegraph, will be described as the light beer of blockchain which I love, by the way, I think it's a brilliant analogy for, for what we do. It's, it's not quite as pure as Satoshi's original vision, but ultimately all we're trying to do is deliver technology transformation in a decentralized way. I realize those are slightly consulting-y words to describe it, but in the simplest form, what we're trying to do is to take the principles of what works really well in blockchain and apply that to transforming companies and governments, which I think is one of the most fun jobs you can have. For sure. And you actually mentioned something that I, I comment to a lot of regulators and different groups that I talk to all the time is there's differences between blockchain as being sort of the underlying technology, crypto, DeFi, CBDCs, all these different areas within sort of the, the industry that I think maybe the educational side isn't, isn't always fully there, but there's a lot of confusion. So what do you think that we can do as an industry to help educate people? Yeah, it's complicated enough, right? Because each one of those domains that you talk about has its own technology architecture patterns, has its own standout projects. The reference for most of our space is still Bitcoin, occasionally Ethereum, and now more recently NFTs, right? It's what That's what gets put into the newspaper. And I don't really want to be famous or at least referred to in the light of uh, bored apes or crypto punks, as, as exciting as that medium is. The transformation work that we're doing is around... Um, settlement and reconciliation, which isn't sexy, right? It, isn't, it doesn't get into the newspapers. It doesn't get front page coverage, but the cost to society um, is significant. We're looking at identity management or credentials management, right? two specifically different things, but critically important, particularly in the last couple of years in the pandemic of what we've seen ourselves go through, bureaucracy and solving international wide um, data challenges, particularly around identity is really, really hard. Um, CBDC is its own unique domain of interest, and most people on the street wouldn't really care about how their central banks function. Most people wouldn't know who they are, let alone how they work. So there are people who are loving that space and doing great, great, great work. I think we've just got to help people relate to the context of what we're trying to do, or decentralization, or blockchain and DLT, with as many relatable examples as possible. Take the jargon out, take, take the how it works out, take the blockchain out, if you can. And say, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to digitize certain parts of the process that we didn't have before. Or we're going to give you an experience that you weren't able to do. Or we're going to allow you to trade peer-to-peer -peer energy, tokens, um, watches, pictures of bored apes instantly on your mobile phone. And you can pay for that with lower costs, lower fees, greater speed to anybody in the world. And we're going to democratize that marketplace or we're going to allow people access to that content in a different way. That's a very long ramble of how do we explain that. But I think education has to be in context. It can't just be that you know, until we just ram home how Bitcoin works to everybody, suddenly they'll finally wake up and get it. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think there's always going to, people who do, going to be people who don't understand Bitcoin. 
in the same way, there's going to be people who still don't care about settlement and reconciliation or dispute management and supply chain, right? It's just not yeah. going to float some people's boats. Yeah, I think most people don't really even get what what a central bank is, to be honest. So, you know, they don't when they think of their money or their their flow of funds, they they're not thinking, oh wait, some central bank uh, delivered and issued these funds to me. It's it's really their bank or you know, the person who gave them the money or their employee or, you know, whichever it is. So I think that the, the top level standpoint isn't really there. But I do think that blockchain as, a, as an underlying technology is definitely, you know, creating some, some massive adoption with new innovation, new ideas. And, and you mentioned a few of those pieces, the, the exchange of value, the exchange of documents, details, information, that, that whole innovation is, you know, just staggering as to how fast it's happening gotcha and, and that'll click with different people at different times in different settings right you know i don't know whether you know young jason got up at eight years old and said no mom dad you don't understand years from now um you just don't understand mom dad i'm going to transform the world of payments and that's what i've been put on the planet for no one else is going to understand but that's what i'm here for and i will do it right i don't know whether right. that was your realization so early or actually you, you stumble your way into these things right? We, right we have certain orthodoxies or certain ways of ways of working that we've always been taught or that we work in industries i spent a little bit of time in retail banking and you know you just cringe at some of the awful experiences awful processes and awful spaghetti of legacy systems and regulation that just end up with awful experiences Right. My, my bank didn't update at the front end of its application experience for three and a half years. And this is, this is, this is recent. Right. And you start thinking, <laughs> why is that? And because at the same time they were going through a core banking transformation, I know some of the inner workings of some of the teams that were working behind that. And they had so much other nonsense to be getting on with. You know, the entire progress of the digitization and open banking and all of the great innovations that were going to be made available to customers weren't available to me. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's not because it wasn't technically feasible, but that's because those people in a position to make those changes weren't able to do so. Well, that's okay, Anthony. I'm, today I'm dealing with uh, three or four banks, uh, dealing with a transfer of funds that has taken almost two weeks to come through. And it's somehow locked and lost in Never Neverland in the intermediary bank that supposedly is the most technology, has the most technology, but you know, who knows what, what that's happening. If only there were so, an easier way, right? Yeah, well, I think there is. <laughs> um, but you, you're you really considered a, a blockchain expert, maybe not the, on the crypto side, but on the, on the blockchain side. But you also help companies with other technology and stuff like that. Where do you see companies, organizations, are they reluctant to blockchain? Are they open to it? Are they getting more open to it? You know, what's... And what industry are you finding that's most uh, open to it? I think no matter what, in 2021, people are still going to have a visceral reaction one way or another when you mention the word blockchain. And so actually, I spend an awful lot of my time not talking about blockchain. I spend more of my time talking about platforms or integration or the issue that we're going to solve by having a more connected um, supply chain or a more connected series of companies by working together, by having a common platform where we can share data and automate activity, we're going to be able to do certain things better. We're going to have better visibility on our ESG performance, uh, environmental social governance performance around sustainability. Right? We're going to be able to settle faster. We're going to be able to um, trade 
assets peer-to-peer, whether those are, like I said, NFTs uh, related to money, related to fashion, related to art, related to aircraft, right? And manufacturing. You know, those, those are the things that I spend more of my time talking about. Typically what we do or the areas of work that we do fall into three areas is either provenance, identity, or tokenization. Provenance is typically around, you know, like, it, like it suggests, proving that something has happened or getting an irrefutable aggregated view of what has happened. So that can be about supply chain management, that can be about procurement and managing disputes in procure to pay or source to pay. Right? It, is, it is entirely, utterly mundane if you look at it as, as, a, as a comparison to fashion NFTs. Right? The, the, but the, the, this is billions of waste. If you're a large international company that that's, has a huge procurement function that isn't particularly well harmonized or standardized or digitized, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to apply standards. We're trying to apply digitization. We're trying to apply automation. Also known as managing identity, smart contracts, and having an underlying core platform, which is you know, trusted, visible to all, permissioned if it needs to be, et cetera. Right? So right. That, that's kind of thing one. Identity, as it describes, is in some cases, I can't talk about these in public because they're not known yet, but you're seeing governments working specifically around identity use cases where you know, having a ledger where you can identify whether an identity was issued by a trusted body, whether that be um, public sector or private sector, is important. We're seeing a lot of credentials related platforms as well, particularly relating to COVID. Some of the work that IBM's doing in a number of different countries, uh, Germany, US and others is publicly available, is public knowledge. That's a step away in some cases from identity management or what some people would consider to be self-sovereign identity, which is a challenging domain in and of itself. What we're really saying in a lot of cases, actually, it's user controlled identity management or in reality, when we come to health passports, for example, you're talking about user managed certificates and certificate verification because your health passport isn't your identity it's just a proof does does blockchain does blockchain inside of it help with those certification systems i understand little bits of certificate probably to be in trouble but you know in certain markets in certain countries those certifications and certificates are supposed to be managed by the government or by a governing body or somebody else, but some places have restrictions on that. And I know it's caused problems in cross-changing, transfer of that data, information, sharing, et cetera. But does, does blockchain assist with that? So so the, the use of blockchain there is around the, the signing by trusted entities on a platform. So credentials can be issued either by government bodies or private sector bodies. So your PCR test results could be issued by a hospital that is private or public. Right? Your vaccination record oftentimes in the majority of cases will be issued by the government or by a government body, but not always. The verification is not necessarily only a country specific issue. Right? If you're in America and you've got 50 states, then actually, yes, you have a cross state issue because each state is doing a slightly different thing too. Then right. if you look across international borders, you still have the same challenges. How can we verify or trust that this certificate was issued by a party that we recognize so in that instance what blockchain is doing is it's it's the key management and the underlying ledger for who do we trust when we look up the credentials are valid it's not certainly 100 percent not related to uh, pii personally identifiable information that's more about key management so doesn't that still come down to the source of data though i mean if if the single point of entry may be correct at the beginning throughout that blockchain, throughout the resource, the rest of the source of data, it's all trusted that that was the original source. 
whether that was accurate or not is that's interesting. I think. 100%. And what you're trying to do then is you're also layering. That's not just a blockchain problem. That's a blockchain and cybersecurity and identity access management challenge, which says, you know, first things first, you've got to manage your keys to get onto the network. Secondly, you've got to have the, the, the permissioning and the identity and access management of those who have control over those keys. And then certain processes and risk management around what happens if the keys could in some way become compromised. So again, not wanting to delve too deep into this. You've got to think about all of the other governance, risk management, quality control, and security processes around what is still a relatively simple underlying ledger with identity with um, with key management underneath it. So, aside from blockchain, which of course is still education and still a lot of people looking at it and, and understanding, where do you see people hesitant? Like, what's is it hesitancy around blockchain? Is it other technology that there there's more hesitancy around? Where where do you find hesitancy in the the business realm of of blockchain? So I, I say this in pretty much every single conversation I have at this point is that after 10 years, I think we've proven technically everything that needs to be proven around how we work with blockchain or DLT, public chain, private chain, um, crypto based, DeFi, DAOs. Okay, some of them are more nascent than others, but ultimately we were able technically to deliver these capabilities or integrations or smart contracts or again, identity and access management, revocation, whatever it might be, somebody's done it somewhere. The hesitance in a number of cases is, first things first, is there a business case for it? I think we're past the era of, we're just going to blockchainify something and see if it sticks, right? <laughs> okay. and, and fortunately, but that then also then makes it you know, increasingly important to make sure you've got your business case and your governance model right. Third thing, after those two is probably just the appetite to, to think about things in a decentralized way. From a technology, from an IT perspective, most CIOs role is to simplify the IT stack, not to make it more complicated. And when you start looking at decentralization as an approach, if you start working with supply chains, or if you start working with peers in an industry, that dramatically complicates the way you do things in, in some cases, at least in the setup phase. Once you're in steady state, if you've got past the standardization, digitization, integration, security, governance model, what are the rules to change the rules um, type of areas? Actually, at that point, it becomes very simple, right? Because you're in steady state. But everything right. running up to that is actually quite challenging, takes time, takes commitment. Even established blockchain platforms that have been in production for years still struggle to get past banks, IT security people, right? The platform's built. For but the sure. actually just the final integration into is, is on a queue of other stuff that sits alongside regulation, pet projects, legacy, sunsetting of other stuff. Oh, and this new blockchain platform that we're going to put in that's got its own business case over here. But actually this legacy stuff is costing us a bunch of money and that needs to go first. And we're going to do yeah. that for a year. Um, so regular day job stuff still gets in the way of blockchain as much as blockchain does. So you, you've seen the sort of involvement over the last 10 years in blockchain. Where do you see the next 10 years? Wow, prediction time. So I'm not going to be so bold, and I definitely don't rate myself as smart enough to make an out-of-the-box prediction of something that we won't see coming. Because honestly speaking, um, predicting another Satoshi white paper would be challenging, <laughs> but I think if we look at what's the direction of travel for what we have, that's probably a place that's more easy to ground ourselves in practical reality, right? We, we overestimate what can be done in five years and underestimate what can be done in 10. 
So I'm going to underestimate, but talk about kind of a few things that I think are important. We've proven tokenization of assets technically. We haven't scaled it in, in mass. So the eventual tokenization of physical and digital goods is going to proliferate to the point where you've seen people scrambling for NFTs. You've seen the democratization of people being able to monetize, you know, postage stamp or you know, small screen sized images of apes or cats or dogs or whatever you choose. Take that beyond into other forms of artwork or content or gaming or in the financial industry as well. Stocks, shares, bonds, luxury goods, all of that, right? We, we haven't even come close. You know, there are some companies that have got billions of assets under management in tokenized settings. We haven't seen the rest of that transformation. And once we get to there, that peer-to-peer -peer trading and kind of custody management around some of those things, because not everyone's going to manage their own keys. Not everybody wants to look at their own um, assets or manage their own assets on a day-to-day -day basis. Also, what you can do with the data around that, the valuation of your portfolio. If you've got a tokenized portfolio of your car, some watches, some stocks, some green bonds, some startup equity that you have because you've you've ICO style bought into someone's business, your crypto that is kind of pure crypto and payments, the opportunities for other people to help manage that, especially when it's transparent, it's open source, it's available for everybody to see prices and indices, the opacity of, of growing your wealth. That's huge, right? That's mm. not put it in the bank and get 3% scale. That's all the volatility and all of the nascent markets available for somebody to do something with. And that's from a user perspective, from a, from a wealth generation perspective, I think hugely, hugely potent from a what do, you know, if, if we're looking to write the banks back into our story, custody is an easy place to start, right? Because banks will typically always be a secure store of stuff because they have vaults, they have cybersecurity people. That's not, that's not something that you really want to trust to startups. You know, the big vault experience is something that someone is still always going to own uh, or, or there was going to be a personal experience that somebody is going to want to pass that trust onto somebody else. And right. I think banks can still exist there. But then if you look at trading or wealth management or advisory around what do we do with that, that's going to be an interesting space to who wins, right? Is it going to be algorithmic based? Is it going to be expert traders? Not sure. Obviously, Algo is going to play more of a role, but I think that's part of it. I want to see more integration. I want to see more cross-platform integration, particularly around tokens. What we've seen, the, the gold rush for NFTs, we've seen lots and lots of siloed platforms that don't necessarily integrate. You know, the, the movement of tokens between different, different platforms is hard enough already. But being able to then insert into established platforms, you can talk about Google and Facebook and so on, but everyday gaming or sports or uh, Amazon, for example, how do, I, how do I get my tokens into more places or how do I get my blockchain data into more places, I think is going to be important. You know, I've said that, the democratization of NFTs has mean you've now got OpenSea flooded with just a bunch of crap. Some of it's sure. some of it's valuable, but it's valuable because it's in context. Because Jake Paul bought one of them at some point, or because the artist who created it, be it Banksy or Damien Hurst or whoever it might be, there's some there is some value or scarcity or some context specifically around the person who created that. There's no context of me getting on Microsoft Paint and taking a picture of my pixelated picture of myself and selling it as an NFT, unless somebody really values my content, you know, or an original one of one Anthony Day NFT. I'm not <laughs> sure if there's a market for that right now. 
but maybe <laughs> may, maybe there is but that, that only comes from the the creator if you actually track the nft not just the history of who owns it but where it went and what it did if you can see virtual collections or avatar collections whether that be uh, clothing or music or audio or um you know, particular items from gaming appearing because they were used by an individual in a particular event in context, in front of people, and then is made available to somebody else to use in their own time. That context and history, the history we can track, right? That's easy enough to do. The context we can see, but only when that item appears in platforms. If it's just sat in my MetaMask wallet on an open sea, it's kind of static. And yes. I think those integrations are needed to to really bring value and unique experiences around NFTs and blockchain. I think that's probably thing two. Thing three is definitely going to be more identity stuff. I don't want to delve into that because I think it's, on the one hand, it's, it's sensitive. On the other hand, you can say governments will do it or governments won't do it. Everybody's kind of right or wrong. But I think the pervasiveness of digital identity will be important. And not just because I think governments eventually will allow or seed some control around how identities are managed and vetted. I think it, it's, it's actually not about seeding control. It's about identifying that adding other proof points adds quality, doesn't take away authority. Right. right. So digital ID has been really, it's been in the works for 20 years already, right? So uh, in, in many markets and countries and identifying and reviewing it. So I think we're we're close to that stage, no matter if it's a place that says we're not going to do it or not, or, or going to do it, they're moving towards that, that stage anyway. I think so. And the final version of this is machine, machine identity or machine driven transactions, where we've, we've already got IOTs as oracles, we've already got IOT devices or you know, vehicles having wallet addresses. We've proven right. technically for that. I'm not talking about mining crypto in your Tesla, but Right, because that's all—that's already technically feasible, right? What right. you have is a is a is a computer with a battery connected to a network, right? So if you want to mine crypto while you're parked, why isn't everybody, frankly, right? If that's if, if that's sustainable, renewable, exactly. Why wouldn't you, right? You've got you've got you've got all of the digital capabilities to do that, but actually, how does the information from my devices, from my vehicles, from my smartwatches, and so on, how does that enable me to? either protect or share data and or monetize my experience. There's a lot of sensitivity from a regulatory perspective around who owns the data related to your vehicle. Is it the manufacturer? Is it you? You bought the vehicle from the manufacturer. It's owned by you. The title is in your name. Why is the data not, not affiliated then to you? And how do you monetize that? I've seen uh, some interesting presentations around the change of ownership around vehicles as well. You know, moving into the future of... Uh, self self-driven and uh almost almost least the rented or car sharing pooling aspect of things where it's not necessarily the same traditional ownership of that vehicle like we've had for you know the last hundred years so i think that model may be changing slightly as well now you're a big advocate you're a big advocate around sustainability too right so i'm guessing these are some of those interesting conversations around vehicles ownership property, how, how things are tracked or traced, you know, how, where does IBM fit in with that? hundred percent. I think there's, I spend about 50% of my time talking sustainability to corporates, to governments and to my own colleagues, right. You know, demonstrating the art of the possible. There's a couple of different levels of maturity around sustainability at the moment. And you know, first things first is a reminder that it's not just about environmentally responsible. 
It's not just about pollution and carbon. It's also about social, social impact and demonstrating good governance. That's the thing that a lot of people fail to realize that ESG, ESG doesn't mean carbon. It actually means three entirely separate places where organizations need to be transparent, equitable, uh, and responsible. Right? So in, in, in all of those, right, what we're, trying, what we're talking about is the, what are the digital capabilities required to do that better or to improve on those things? The decentralized approach here is that actually if moving away from small incremental changes of individual corporates, if we can work as entire supply chains or if we're able to, um, antitrust permitting, peers of similar in industry, we're, we're working in the UK with a number of members in the fashion industry, um, ditto in the food industry. You know, these are areas where actually the collective visibility, data, buying power processes of those industry participants can really move things more than two or 3%. We can move things 20 or 30 or 50% because all the earth system trends are accelerating, right? Anyone who's, who knows about exponential curves, all of the bad statistics are growing quickly and accelerating. Exactly. A small yes. incremental change here and there, you know, is not really gonna move the needle, particularly at the corporate level. So decentralization is important, or at least distribution is important so that we can work together collectively. The data is important, the standards are important, because at the moment, the low level of maturity is, oh my God, what am I actually doing? Right, that, that's a level that a lot of companies are at, is like they're scared to death that they don't actually know what they're buying from who and where. Because I think 67% of companies only have visibility at kind of one up, one down. Their customer one up, their supplier one down in terms of what's actually happened to any degree of granularity. Beyond that, you start getting to sort of low single digit percentages of saying actually, well, I don't know where my supplier sourced their stuff from. And I'm accountable yeah. for that now. Level two on this is actually getting towards circularity. And this is where platforms like blockchain, because settlement reconciliation and data are important, is saying, how can we start looking at regenerative behavior or reuse of feedstock or plastic or materials? And how do we incentivize our suppliers and track that our suppliers are doing that? On one hand, we're responsible to regulators to demonstrate we are doing it, otherwise we get taxed. We're responsible to our stakeholders, our customers, to demonstrate we're doing that in, in, in an ethical and transparent way. And blockchain can provide a platform for doing that if we enable it. You know, and then third, how are we actually managing the, the financial process around that? If I'm buying a bunch of reused oil or plastic feedstock or whatever it might be from my customer or from one of my first or second tier suppliers, there's still a process, there's a business process that needs to go behind that. And again, in the same way as source to pay happens in procurement normally, you still need that. So that's hugely, hugely powerful. And then social impact. If you look at some of the, the platforms that IBM have worked with, like Plastic Bank, where actually there's a tokenization element to um, empowering anybody to bring plastic from wherever they see it into a manufacturing ecosystem where they can be rewarded for bringing that plastic or bringing that impact. It doesn't have to be plastic. It doesn't have to be um, developing nations. It can be any concept, but then that yeah. token is then redeemable within that ecosystem, whether you are a supplier, an individual, a manufacturer, a customer, whoever, that circularity can then accelerate because we've got a digital platform that underpins it. Yeah, for sure. I, I uh, just had David Katz from Plastic Bank on uh, the podcast, a longtime friend and colleague, and you know it's impressive to see what they're doing. What last month alone, a hundred million bottles uh, of plastic recycled and. And that's all trackable and recordable and, and demonstrated because of what blockchain brings to that power, right? And then 100%. what the effect is, is also all there. So it's it's really impressive how 
he and the team and obviously working with you guys at IBM have helped put that structure together to, to have that. Yeah, and, and imagine that we're not just talking about plastic. Once you have that underlying data platform, this is one of the other things that I think gets lost on people around these sorts of data platforms is once you've got one use case for plastic, you can do the exact same thing for oil or paper or other materials or other goods or social, social impact behavior, right? You've, you have a connected supply chain now. You have a platform on which we can track, identify, incentivize behavior. Right? If, if we move beyond plastic, we can get into carbon, we can get into waste and waste management. All of that can be shared, transacted, incentivized. And so that's, that's where we need to take it to the next level. So Plastic Bank is a very exciting project. Are there, is there other exciting projects that you're working with at the moment that you can talk about or, or suggest? The, the ones that I'm most excited to talk about that are in the public domain, we're doing a lot of work in circularity with industrial manufacturers like uh, Mitsui in Japan, Asahi Kasai. Um, we're working with kind of decent sized retailers like Carrefour, Kai and Kato around cotton uh, and, and um, material traceability, specifically for clothing. Doing some work with Ariani. Uh, they are an NFT and tokenization platform as a service, digital wallets as a service. They've got a specific focus on luxury and consumer goods, really create a team. I've got some really interesting work that they've been doing with uh, watch manufacturers, with fashion houses, with um, Paris Fashion Week as well. And we're trying to get some really kind of very, very creative art of the possible crossovers with some crypto and traditional um, retailers as well. So trying to get some really exciting things going with them. What else? Um, the, the UK fashion and textiles um, platform that we're working on in the UK, which is around sustainability and waste reduction, trying to get you know, an industry-wide consortia working on solving problems together. Right? Those are exactly as complex as they sound, but once you get them spun up and working, the amount of interest, the amount of passion behind some of the participants that we've got working in the project, absolutely incredible. Right? So you can harness all of that. Um, and, and there's probably more stuff I can't talk about, but those are probably yeah. the ones I'd point you to. And, and all the other ones I try and post on my LinkedIn fairly regularly if I can. You mentioned digital ID, so I'm thinking there's lots of that. So <laughs> There is some uh, of that. There is some of that. I, I've been an international sort of uh, uh, resident of, the, of Estonia for a long time. So digital ID to me is I support it fully. You know, I think there's the incredible incentives, options, of availability, efficiencies you know with with really effective platforms so it, it uh, unlocks a lot all of the digital asset kyc aml scaling of crypto and and digital assets platforms all requires a degree of digital identity to properly scale in regulated environments um i've got a podcast coming out this weekend around switzerland and pretty much 80 percent of the stuff they do is digital assets and custody and banking and and you know crypto as a service type of solutions Everyone you speak to says, we're kind of getting there. We're doing the best with a very mature regulatory framework. Other jurisdictions have a less mature regulatory framework and are operating in what often is described as the gray area of what we can get away with at the moment. Mm. But you know, a universally accepted digital identity, right? Let's, let's shoot for the moon here, is yeah. going to allow us to do the sorts of cross-border token and crypto-enabled use cases that we know are possible today but are still being held back by the user experience. Yeah, that's great. I look forward to that too. So tell me a little bit more about your podcast. Blockchain can't save the world. Yes. Um, blockchain won't save the world. 
It's a deliberately <laughs> ironical title. The, the point really is I had enough conversations in the early days around what is blockchain? What are you doing with it? Oh, is it this? Is it that? Um, it's really trying to bring enough case studies and examples of what's happening in blockchain from an objective perspective, much like you're doing, right? Um, and season one went really well. We covered all of the major topics. We covered IoT, we covered analytics, we covered data, we covered um, self-sovereign identity, state of maturity, technology architecture, all of it, right? We even had a couple of roasts in there to kind of poke fun at blockchain. The, the most recent season actually has, has continued through lockdown and is really a, a little bit of a mix of my passion for blockchain and also travel. I've been to about 120 countries in my life, but no new ones in the last 18 months. So actually what I said is I still want to get out. I still want to meet people. I still want to talk about the topics that I love and bring that to the rest of the community. But I had to do that from my bedroom. So, so what I ended up doing is trying to pick some of the countries. And I, and I asked, you know, we put this out to the community on LinkedIn, you know, who wants to hear about different countries? And we, you know, everything from Russia down to Trinidad and Tobago, right? And, and you know, had the community vote for which countries they wanted to hear more about. And the point is to get the, the kind of history of what made blockchain and crypto projects successful, right? We're not exclusively talking about enterprise blockchain here. It's actually a full spectrum. Trying to focus on the countries that get less visibility in the papers, right? We get a lot about the US. We get a lot about certain countries in Europe, but a lot about China. But actually, when you pick... Um, countries where there's some amazing work going on, Brazil, Netherlands, Israel, Singapore and Switzerland stand out. Obviously, they're known leaders in the space. There's so much that we can learn from that diverse view. It's complete, complete self-sabotage from an editing perspective because it started off being you know, four or five people in the episode and then everyone said, well, well, you've got to speak to this person. You've got to speak to this one. You've got to get a government perspective. You've got to get you know, somebody from this exchange on. You've got to get this. Well, this person knows everything. They were there at the start. Um, and eventually, once you've got all of the OGs of the scene, plus a few different perspectives, actually, you end up with 15 people on an episode and spending right. 20 to 30 hours of editing time. Uh, your editors will know the pain that you go through for that. And I'm not going to do too many of them in this format because it is literally having a significant effect on my, my personal life. <laughs> what little of it we have in lockdown at the minute. But that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, if anybody wants to check it out, Blockchain Won't Save the World's on all the places you can get podcasts, right? Google, Apple, Spotify. Um, I post it fairly regularly, you know, updates on my LinkedIn. If anybody wants to contribute to an episode, if anyone wants to come on one of the episodes, if we're doing any of the country shows, please do feel free to reach out. We're just really trying to spread more knowledge and make it more accessible uh, in terms of what's, what's got us here, what exists in the world today, and where are we going next? That's uh, that's great. You know, this the podcast I started here was is really because of having so many conversations like we're having today, Anthony. Like, I'm learning, I'm getting more insight, I'm sharing. You know, and a part of this is about how to share with other people, educate, and provide context. I think we're the last ten years, as you said, there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of change, and we're we're still. I think we're ten years from today. We're still looking at a lot of development, a lot of education, and more sharing and and really that's probably more of what i find about the blockchain community we are open to sharing right we are open to educating providing information decentralization but really bringing stuff together right informing people and supporting the supporting the world 100 if you could put the combined hype free knowledge of the blockchain community of what's possible with decentralization with identity with connected systems and platforms with open source in the minds of 
CEOs, CIOs, CDOs around the world, if you took the hype out and you just got the best bits of what's possible, what we've done today and what's readily available as accelerators, you would see dramatic change overnight. And unfortunately, we're still not there because the rest of the world and the day job gets in the way. But we're doing our best out here. I'm interested to know if, if through your interviews and stuff, if the topic of sort of the transparency versus privacy debate has come up and, and if so, like, what's your viewpoint on, on that? That's an interesting one. How, how, how has that one surfaced? In my view, I hear it in always private protecting privacy, but then transparency as to, you know, how, and how, and how those two interact and things. And I've, I've spoken to uh, Oliver Gale recently. He's launched the Panther Protocol. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not, but it's a very interesting debate, I think, just in the topic of transparency versus privacy and how to how to manage that. Of course, with digital IDs, with transactions, with all these different areas. So I'm curious from your standpoint and in, in these conversations, how they come up and where people are feeling. Yeah, I think you've got some tension if you're talking about individuals' privacy versus what happens sort of transactional activity between companies or you know, in, the, in the kind of corporate space. In banking or in business, whether you like it or not, you, know, you have a requirement to know who you're tra transacting with because you want a certain product, you want a certain accountability for those deliverables. So that's why, I guess, in a lot of enterprise examples, distributed ledgers and permissioning is there right that's it's, it's either a regulatory requirement or it's a corporate requirement that you know who you who you can trade with i think what's super powerful about public blockchains is the ability to track transactional flow and validate that activity has happened if you need to make a subsequent inquiry and have somebody uh, an organization or under dispute you know, demonstrate that these are my private keys and, and make that available in in a private domain I think that that's massively powerful, right? If you look at all of the analytics that are coming out around DeFi and crypto, that's all because it's public, it's, it's available to see, which is super, super interesting. There are some concerns, specifically if you're looking at listed companies around their, if you make public information available around their transactions, and if somehow you manage to leak the private keys or even just through smart inference, you're able to make observations about um, private corporate behavior that could affect share price or that could have an impact. You've got, you've got a challenge there. I'm not saying it's, uh, it restricts the value of public networks, not at all. And this is why we have capabilities like zero knowledge proofs that allow us to manage around data on a public chain and transparency in a public way. Um, but that, but we haven't, in the same ways we haven't seen enough disputes in NFTs to figure out where the pain points are. We haven't seen NFT platforms, you know, taken to court for millions of dollars because their platform went down or because the right. source to where those NFT images exist got taken down, whatever it might be, right? Same thing we haven't seen in corporate. Paul Brody talks about this really well as he put a blog out a little while ago where he said, you know, corporates aren't really ready yet for the shock of that amount of transparency. Right? And how, how transparent do we want to be with which data that is, that is relevant for the public and that is appropriate for corporates about in the public? You know, with individuals, very, very clear story, right? Nobody wants any of their private information available to others, but we do want transparency. We do want peer-to-peer -peer activity. We all know what Vitalik's private keys are, uh, public keys are, sorry, not private keys. Right? We, we all know 
all the SHIB that he got given and where all the SHIB went to afterwards. And right. that was one of, I still think, one of the best PR stunts in blockchain yet. Uh, and I don't know how much other spam tokens get sent to Vitalik, Vitalik's wallet now on a daily basis. I don't know how, how it plays out, but um, we've got a tension between what's relevant, what's needed, what's legal, and the implications of that downstream. It's interesting. So, and before I let you go today, what's one thing that you think someone or, or somebody could help drive blockchain adoption? Focus on real world problems. I think stop, stop calling it blockchain. Um, talk about platforms. If we start talking about the digital capabilities that are required underneath the problem that we're trying to solve, it takes away the hype and it allows us to be a bit more objective. It also allows us to assess whether we need blockchain to solve the problem at all. Right? If we start saying that actually we want to solve a problem in a decentralized way, but all we really need is a cloud-based API that connects us to lots of ERP systems because we already have standards in place, may not be a blockchain use case, but there's value in fixing that problem. And we've thought about it in a way that allows us to be more expansive. So this is, this is the bit that I find is useful. Right? Anybody who's spent time working in blockchain, what's transferable? If you never worked in blockchain ever again, you would think about the way that we change processes, systems, data in an entirely different way from somebody who spent their entire life managing an internal database or managing a CRM system. Right? And I think that's, that's really super powerful. We still need to take the blockchain out of it and we need to talk objectively about what it is we're trying to do. I feel that I feel the same way about the usage of, of the term crypto because uh, it's they're they're not all the same and they're all very different, but uh, they had intermix with so many elements and crypto really isn't blockchain and crypto really isn't NFTs. You know, there's just such a variety of different elements that are there, or should I say cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah. Cryptographic, you know, there's lots of different things from security and transparency and, and structure and everything else. But I think that that's, uh, that's something to some similar viewpoint. So, um, you know, Anthony, it's great thoughts today. I really appreciate your input sharing. You have a wealth of knowledge and information. I, I really look forward to connecting with you more and, uh, maybe even empowering some IBM uh, thoughts and ideas for some of our own business and our own platforms. Love to try and see that happen, Jason. And look, thanks for inviting. Thanks for the relatively unfiltered ramble around the blockchain space. It's always great <laughs> to, to talk to like-minded people around the stuff that matters to try and get some experience and, and some, some knowledge out in the space. And as long as we're doing that for the community and people are picking up on the content we're putting out, hopefully that furthers all of our causes. So, so yeah, good, good luck to you for continuing the show. Great. I know I know who you've got lined up in the next show as well, because Sarah told me. So I'm really excited for the next episodes too. Awesome. And I look forward to seeing your uh, your podcast as well, Anthony. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining the Off the Ledger podcast today. Remember to uh, listen to the newest podcast wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. Thank you very much. Have a great day.